Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I do. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hey, what's up? This is Ergo. It's Damon here. Really hope that you're well, wherever you are hearing this. We have had quite a year and we're about to take a little bit of a break from doing our usual thing. But don't worry, we got some really, really special things up our sleeve for you, including the re-airing, rebroadcasting of the month of support and actions for the Chicago Torture Justice and the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial. For folks who've been listening to the show, I'm sure you know Chicago's long history of police torture and false confessions, but also our rich history of resistance, reparation, and liberation. And so the Chicago Torture Justice Center and Chicago Torture Justice Memorial is very much at the center of those efforts of creating a better world as a way to heal the injustice that our people have endured. And we had a great month of May celebrating six years of the passing of the historic reparation ordinance that went to Chicago City's Council and also four years of the existence of the Chicago Torture Justice Center. Uh, so we're going to give you a suite of events that you can listen to that were, were live streamed uh, that we want to make sure a few more folks get their ears on. But know that there are two real major actions of how you can support. Um, you can support the Chicago Torture Justice Center, which is working to build and, and rehabilitate its new location. And you can also support the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial, which has not yet been fully funded by the city and is still working um, to get its space uh, and, and claim of land of where the memorial will be built. So both of those interrelated, connected efforts need your support. And you can go to chicagotorturejustice.org to donate both to the center and to the memorial. So when, we're not going to do any a few of our normal episodes, but we're going to give you this month of events that happened in May of this year, 2021. And we're also going to give you a few more editions of Climate Change Maker as well as the Sawyer Seminar. So you still going, you know, you gonna get your learnings on. So y'all going to be smart. Y'all going, y'all going, we not leaving you stranded, but we're going to take some time and take a break like we've never done before. You'll still be hearing our voice and other great, brilliant voices, uh, but it'll just be in a little bit of a different way for a little blip of this summer and also shout out to my my lovely partner who i am in deeper commitment with jennifer pagan so please please enjoy these next few editions from the ctjc anniversary and also understand that a lot of this was recorded in multiple places so we may have a few technical difficulties or sound quality issues but we are grateful for your understanding in advance and y'all have a great summer we'll be back soon First up in this special rebroadcast from the CTJC, CTJM reparations anniversary, we have the re-airing of how we got here, where we're going, a really informative but also heartfelt conversation that put survivors in dialogue with journalists that really helped uncover and document uh, this really gruesome and vile oppressive history that is central to how Chicago is organized. 
I personally was moved. Uh, we also are joined by Ergo homie Trina Reynolds-Tyler of the Invisible Institute, who co-hosted and co-moderated this event. So hope you enjoy how we got here, where we're going, the Chicago Torture Justice Center. Welcome uh, to this event, uh, how we got here, where we're going. My name is Damon Williams. I am so happy uh, to be here with all of our folks watching us on Facebook Live, um, in the Zoom with us, people who will be listening to this audio later. Uh, we thank you for joining in this conversation and being a part of this multi-generational effort uh, at repair and at liberatory justice. My name is Damon Williams. I am going to be a co-host of this event tonight. We have an amazing panel uh, for you. I am proud to be a part of the Let Us Breathe Collective. I'm the co-host of the podcast, Ergo. I am also proud now to be working with the Chicago Torture Justice Center. And we are all May celebrating six years uh, since the passing of the historical reparations ordinance here in Chicago, the first of its time of its kind uh, in our nation. Uh, and so we want to bring folks in always to ground in the work that has been done and to understand the history of the violence that is shaping our society, uh, but not just to be retrospective or nostalgic. Uh, or to treat this as a, a static history class, uh, but to understand and to frame and propel the work that is needed and the work that we must do going forward. Uh, I'm thinking back now that this is the six year anniversary and I now am proud to be a part of the CTJC team. Uh, I've been hosting these events for a few years now. Uh, and so I remember last year, uh, we were just seeing the, the footage of Ahmaud Aubrey. Uh, we were just really getting settled uh, into the realities of this pandemic and social distancing and quarantining. Um, and even since then, right, we've seen so much world change, uh, so much of a, um, a unique and historically poignant response to police violence. Um, and so even now in this past month or so, as we've seen another uptick in public destruction and state-sanctioned execution, uh, you know, warping and, and, and absorbing our consciousness. It's important that we understand this history of torture in the Chicago Police Department as a significant human rights violation that is in context uh, of all of the violence that folks are, are in resistance to and stepping up to and naming. Uh, and so we are excited on this week where uh, we are celebrating world press freedom uh, to be having a conversation uh, about the work that has been done to understand this history of torture and the work and the fight for reparations, uh, but also to understand at large when it comes to how we, how we engage and counteract police violence, how the spread of information is vital to that work. Uh, so we have some amazing panelists that I'm going to introduce, and then our, our phenomenal moderator is going to take us away into a really great discussion. Um, and we just want to remind folks that as I said in this opening, the work is not done, um, and we encourage folks to, to plug in and support. Um, and so that can obviously happen with your, your eyes and ears and with your attention and with spreading the word, uh, but also there are resources that are needed to, to sustain and expand this effort and this fight. Uh, so we encourage folks tonight and all month 
uh, to really consider contributing and donating to both the Chicago Torture Justice Center, uh, which is in the process of opening and creating a new space and really needs our community to support that, uh, but also the funding of the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial. Um, and it's important to note that the fight has been vivacious <laughs> and, and energized, and there's actually been uh, an influx in some resources, but it is really important that as we um, are excited about some of our victories, we need to understand that the city has not yet upheld its commitment uh, to supporting and funding this memorial of torture uh, that was cited as a significant part of the reparations ordinance. Uh, so in addition to your support financially, we need to all understand that this city, whether you call Chicago home or not, uh, has a responsibility that has not been upheld and we need our people to make sure that, that we hold our, uh, this space accountable. Uh, so with that, go to chicagotorturejustice.org and please, please, please donate to both the center and to the memorials. And with no further ado, I'm gonna introduce our amazing guests and panelists. First and foremost, we have Gregory Banks. Greg is an activist and a learning fellow with the Chicago Torture Justice Center. He experienced abuse and torture at the Chicago Area 2 Police Station in 1983 and spent many years in the Illinois Department of Corrections due to being tortured and coerced into a false confession. Uh, Greg is one of the most amazing spirits um, and really a central voice um, to holding down and making sure that the survivor experience is at the core of what we are talking about when we politically engage police violence. So everybody, please, please welcome and clap while you're on mute or on stream, Mr. Gregory Banks. Right next to him, we have just a, a phenomenal, tireless warrior for justice, Mark Clemens. Mark Clemens is also a, a survivor of police torture for the Chicago Police Department. And at age 16 in 1981, he was taken to area three violent crimes uh, until he was tortured into a forced confession. Mark was one of the first juveniles sentenced to natural life with, without parole in the state of Illinois. He has remained incarcerated for 28 years, uh, but since uh, his work Coming home, he has been at the forefront of so many movements, not just in Chicago, uh, but nationally, making sure that he shows up with all families that are impacted by police violence and by incarceration. Uh, and I'm so proud to, and honored to see his work. And we have Mark Clemens with us. Welcome to the stage. Also, we are honored to have in this space somebody very, very important to this work, Mr. John Conroy. John is the senior investigator at the MacArthur Justice Center and Northwestern University School of Law, uh, but has also been a dynamic investigative reporter um, and his House of Screams has been fundamental in us understanding and documenting and pushing forward uh, this work of justice. And he also took his work uh, and expressed it artistically with the play My Kind of Town, which premiered at Chicago's Timeline Theater. The play is set against the backdrop of the police torture uh, that John was instrumental in helping expose. We also have with us Maurice Posley. Maurice is the senior researcher at the National Registry of Exonerations, a database of nearly 2,700 wrongful convictions in the United States since 1989. He was awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 2008 for his investigating reporter at the Chicago Tribune um, and has done extensive work on prosecutorial 
prosecutorial misconduct, um, and also wrote George Ryan's memoir, <laughs> uh, Until I Could Be Sure How I Stopped the Death Penalty in Illinois. Uh, and I, I joke because I laugh at Illinois politicians, but that is an important history about uh, the of abolition of the death penalty in Illinois, which is deeply, deeply uh, connected to this fight of repair led by survivors of torture. And last, but certainly not least, we have our very own, and she is all of ours, uh, Joey Mogul. Joey Mogul is a partner at the world-renowned re People's Law Office and has sought justice for Chicago police torture survivors for 20 years, successfully representing a number of Burge torture survivors in their criminal po post-conviction proceedings. Uh, Joey was also instrumental in drafting the ordinance that we are now celebrating the anniversary of, uh, filed in 2013 on behalf of Chicago Torture Justice Memorials uh, that Joey helped initiate and co-found. And on 25th, on, in, I'm sorry, and on May 6, 2015, the Chicago City Council unanimously passed the unprecedented legislation providing reparations to Burge torture survivors. And Joey has been an outspoken and widely supporter of uh, legal and also institutional navigation while also being grounded and rooted and connected to grassroots movements. So we are honored to have her here and to continue help us document and understand this history and the story and the work that we need to do moving forward because history is not stagnant nor in the past and we have a lot of work to do and the time is now. And last but not least, I am so excited to pass it to our moderator, Ms. Trina Reynolds-Tyler. Trina is one of just my favorite people and someone I'm proud to call friend, but a dynamic organizer in the city, um, was one of the people instrumental in leading the phenomenal People's Grab and Go Mutual Aid effort this summer in response to uprising and pandemic. And is also, um, you know, one of the most brilliant people I know and a phenomenal data scientist that works with the Invisible Institute. So uh, she is uniquely placed to talk about the intersection of information of police violence and how that information is distributed via media and journalism. And so I wanna bring our moderator to the stage, Trina, and let you get in conversation with these amazing people. But if you just wanna kind of kick off of the importance of information and how we circulate and tell the story of the violence of police that so often gets hidden or is um, locked in back rooms and does not get exposed. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction, Damon. It truly is an honor to be here in conversation with the folks on the panel today. And, um, you know, this, this work is so important, right? Uh, not only archiving survivors' stories, but also like um, encouraging people or to face and remember what it is that has happened in this city. You know, we talk about the, you know, six years ago and like the four years ago, um, but I, I love how you grounded us in this kind of discussion about what's happening today. And you know, even in most recent events where, you know, it, the, the, the search warrant that was held at Anjanette Young's house, right? Um, something that she describes as a sexual violation um, when thinking about the shooting of Adam Toledo um, and many others um, that have already happened this year, right? It's important to recognize that this is not the past. This is like right now. And we need to actively be thinking about how we make this information accessible, right? So we have to access that information with our unique talents. We have to make that information accessible 
to the masses, being mindful of making that information accessible to survivors specifically, right? And then we have to have a lot of tough conversations about, you know, how we make sure that this never happens again. Um, and, you know, I, I just, my the last thing that I will name is that, you know, there are so many survivors that we have not yet we do not know their names, right? So many survivors who absolutely never came forward to discuss what happened to them because sometimes that's just how people process trauma, right? And so regardless of even these individual cases that we have obviously made light to, right? We need to always remember that these the, the, the conditions that, that encourage this, right? This behavior is deeply institutional, right? It's not about a single individual cop. It is about the whole system that um, creates an environment and like enables these violent um, violent acts. Um, and so, you know, that, that'll be my two cent um, for now. Um, I'm really looking forward to chatting more. And I, you know, I, my first question is, is um, really about the House of Screams. So um, the House of Screams was written by John Conroy. I know we spoke about this earlier, but uh, that was the first time that many people learned about torture that had been occurring in Chicago. Um, and although it was the first time that many people, you know, learned about police torture, um, it was not. For, that was not the experience for everyone. And so I think that what I love to pass, I love to pass it to you, Greg. Um, can you tell us about how this piece impacted your story? Thank you, Damon, for that introduction. Uh, and thank you, uh, Trina. Oh, man, I, you know, I have to say this before I do anything. Uh, give honor to God, uh, allowing me to breathe this, this breath that I'm breathing. Uh, so uh, I want to say this to John Conway. I, ha I, ha I haven't had the chance to say this, but I'm going to say it now. If it had not been for John Conroy and, his, and, and, and him writing that paper and doing his investigation and the People's Law Office, Jeffrey Haas and, and uh, Flint Taylor and Joey Mungo, all of them that 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 brought this to fruition. I don't even know if they would have ever known anything about the houses, uh, the torture. So when I got a chance to to uh, actually when I had when I had a chance to read the House of Screams, and this may not sound this may sound crazy to you or to y'all, but when I read that, I was happy that I wasn't by myself because I felt. When that happened to me, I felt like they took they took my manhood from me and happened. And uh, I didn't I didn't even I never wanted anybody to know that I had given a confession uh, that I had been tortured and and plastic bags placed on my head and them playing Russian roulette with me. I never wanted anybody. I, I never thought that I would have the opportunity to tell anybody about it. But because of the House of Screams, I think that when I read that and I sing, uh, I sing Anthony Holmes and I sing Melvin Jones' name and and I sing uh, Daryl Cannon and uh, my rappy David Bates and 
And I seen a number of people that I didn't know, but I seen people that I did know. And um, and I said, man, I'm not by myself. Something is about to happen. And it did happen. Uh, my case got overturned. And I think more so than anything, even though the appellate court and what actually what happened to the Wilson brothers, which was uh, the, the leading case in my appeal, the Wilson brothers, by their case being known to a lot of people, I just was so, I was so happy, man, uh, that I wasn't by myself, man. And the House of Screams, I got a copy of the House of Screams now. And I, I read that and I just, I, I'm, you know, I'm just thankful, uh, John Conroy, really. I'm thankful, man. I'm thankful that you that you did what you did because if you had done that, they probably have never known what happened to us, what happened to us. And, and when I think about that, see, this stuff is, this stuff is deep. Y'all, it's deep. It's, it's deep in me. And it hurts, man, when I think about it's brothers, it's brothers and sisters that's still locked up. They may never get out. See, I got another chance with my and I said no matter what whatever happened to me in this in, in this life right here from, from that day forward, that I would never stop fighting. Man. Man, I said, I'll never stop fighting with them brothers and them sisters that locked up. Because, man, that's not, man, they took, they took everything from us when they did that. They took everything, man, and I hated that, man. I was mad. I was mad for a long time, but I'm not mad anymore. You know, and then I became angry. And people said, man, you got the right to be angry, man. What happened to you shouldn't have never happened. And I and I and I said that I would never let that happen to anybody else. And I'm gonna do everything that I can do. And in this life, I don't care what happens, I'm gonna keep on fighting. I'm gonna fight till there's no more breath in me. And it hurts every day. But that's not that hurt is what keep pushing me. That's what keep me going, man. And 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 I and I and I tell y'all, man, John Conroy and the People's Law Office, Jeffrey Hodge, Flint Taylor, Joey and them, if they wouldn't have did what they did, this wouldn't have happened. So, John, I love you, man. Thank you. Because you gave me back my you you helped me get back my life, man. Sorry for the crying, y'all. You know, I this is something I for years, man, I couldn't cry. Now I'm glad that I can cry. When I cry, I get relieved from, from, from that hurt that I had. Yeah, it hurts. And it's probably going to hurt for the rest of my life. But that's going to keep me going. So, Thank you so much for um, being so vulnerable with us and um, sharing your story with us and your spirit with us. Um, this is, you know, it's different when... I think a lot of times people are looking at articles and pieces of paper, and I don't know if they're always able to recognize that like, there are human beings who, you know, experience this and continue to experience this. Um, and so I thank you so much for your courage, and I thank you for your time. Like, I, I so thank you for it. Um, 
Thank Jimmy, you. Do you want to say anything before I push to the? I just, I just was here to offer Greg love, and you yeah. know, when, when when I heard you apologizing for releasing or expressing, I just wanted to to hold and hug you and let you know that we we are here to bear witness, and we are here to to. You should not be holding that by yourself, also. So so you are in a community that loves and supports you. And, and, and we are continuing that legacy of that resilience that, that you are, are sharing with us. So I didn't have nothing to say besides Greg, I love you. And, and, and thank you for, for all that you do in the way that you keep showing up. Yes, thank y'all, man. Thank you and thank all of y'all for giving me the support that y'all have been giving me. So we all in this together. So, I'm going to switch it up a little bit I, just beca because, I, you know, I so appreciate you sharing, Gregory. I think I'm going to, uh, I, I think I'll go to you next, um, John. You know, in addition to the House of Screams, you've also written two books in a play that reference the history of police torture. So in hearing the impact of your work, how do you understand the role and responsibility of truth tellers? When I saw this question coming, I was a little baffled, and I asked Maury for some advice. And uh, he wisely told me that um, the, the role of a truth teller is to ask questions, to look for truth and report it, look for layers, and don't take the easy answer. Um, so that's Maury's wisdom there, for which I am very grateful. And just spinning off of that and spinning off of what Greg said, you know, that first article. Uh, was a, a big leap for the reader and for me in that um, I think most people in Chicago now are accustomed to police brutality and um, videos of executions. Um, but in 1990, um, you know, we had had one DNA exoneration in the United States and uh, it had nothing to do with police misconduct or uh, prosecutorial misconduct. And so um, in looking back, I'm kind of surprised that we were so willing to do it. And then uh, stunned by the lack of response, we got four letters, two were in favor of the torture and two were against. And looking back on my own work, I feel I failed um, in a lot of ways. I failed individual victims of Virgin, his people because uh, I was in conversation with them. I never did a story. I never, you know, I, I was talked to Mark Clemens. Mark, I talked to your mother five or six times. I talked uh, back and forth with Eric Kane many times. I just never got it in the paper. And um, on the issue of responsibility, um, it's tough. Uh, but I think it's, I saw a movie once um, in which it was a documentary about a chaplain on death row in Texas. And the cameraman panned Maury Posley's office, Maury Posley and Steve Mills. And they had 600 letters, um, I'm guessing, could be a thousand. Um, and I just thought, shit, I feel bad. Look at Posley, Christ. So that's all I have to say, thanks. Thank you, John. Um, I so appreciate your willingness to acknowledge, right, some of the courage and like, you know, the uniqueness of what y'all did at that time. And also recognize like some of the ways that you feel you maybe have failed individuals, right? Because 
you know, there is a shared responsibility here um, across the board, not only you, right, but like a lot of lot of people, you you did contribute um, quite a bit of work here. And so um, we, we are so grateful for your time. I, you know, I do appreciate specifically this, this willingness to acknowledge failures, though, because we're always constantly learning, you know, we're always constantly figuring out what the best next steps are, right, how to best share and make information accessible. And we're, you know, we, you're talking a lot, right, we talking a lot, I know Damon and I have talked so many times, right. Um, and often, you know, we are not heard until the 10th time that we speak. Um, and that's why it's so important to if you have the you know, the uh, ability to to continue to like talk yo smack, if I'm gonna do the, the PG version of what I would have otherwise said. Um, so that, you know, that brings me back, speaking of Mark, right? Mark, in your, in your bio, you describe your work as a responsibility that requires many hours learning, lots of reading and much communication with men and women that are incarcerated. How does keeping your eye on local news support your politicized healing and organizing work? Thank you. Uh, and one thing that I do want to acknowledge, I love John's writings, but I also love Maurice's writings as well. And I think that many of us, we had no reality that tortures had occurred to so many different people. And it was through their writings that we begin to learn uh, just basically how deeply enrooted this game of corruption had gone, you know, meaning John Burge was corrupt, the prosecutors were corrupt. Most of us were poor individuals stuck in prisons with long sentences, uh, charged with crimes that people would basically demonize us for. Sitting in prison all of these years, and I remember when Maurice came down to the prison to visit me, all I could do is thank God and cry. Because, and you know, as a journalist, they probably don't understand that you can tell your story so much to the point where that you are unbelieved. And now someone, I don't care if they just give you a piece of candy, it's more than what has transpired in your life. Me being someone 16 years old, railroaded by the criminal justice system, forced to learn behind prison walls. When I say forced to learn, that's where I received my education. Now being given a natural life sentence, told that I would die inside of a prison system, no one believed us. And what was so remarkable to me was how John, as well as the Chicago Tribune at that particular time, they spearheaded off of each other. And it allowed for 
this information to reach ears and eyes that we could not possibly reach. Me, when I left prison, I was saying, man, something has to change. What? I didn't know. So when they opened up the prison door, maybe Joey can contest to this. I just ran because it's kind, it's kind of hurt. It hurts me to see mothers. They're crying for help and no one would help them. And I'm not saying, John, that you failed me because you didn't. I understand how much I'm woe out now. You know, I'm just keeping it real. I'm woe out now. I'm always tired now. This is a journey that if I could take it back, no way in the world I would have gotten involved into this type of field. It really, it demonizes you with political officials. It keeps you where that you are always with your, your eyes and ears because you never know when the cops are come knocking for basically speaking out against members of the Chicago Police Department. What amazes me is a police officer able to infiltrate the black and brown community and to legally lynch them and for it to really go unnoticed for more than a decade and a half before any type of writing start to surface. I remember sitting down with the same prosecutor who prosecuted my case and they wrote a book, Courtroom 302, after this prosecutor. And I asked him, as well as I asked the judge, how dare you use my goddamn disabilities against me because I couldn't read, because I couldn't write, and you demonized me. You gave me four murders, and you stuck me inside of a prison. The best way I could do as a human being was to explain to the judge before sentencing that you made a mistake. Yes, I have done a lot of things in my life, but it didn't make me a murderer. And really, I think that our media today has downsized. They have put water in the mix of a lot of their stories now today. And to be honest, maybe that did transpire when Maurice was a writer and when John was a writer but I've never seen it like I see today. And it scares me. It scares me due to the fact that just because there were tortures in my era, what is the new game of the police department and railroading people to prison to sit there for the rest of their lives? We have entirely too many people stuck inside of our prisons. Many people may look at me as being unlearned because if I see a politician, I'm going to ask them, how dare that you tell me that you can't help us when you can help us? We shouldn't have to beg for 
torture memorial. We shouldn't have to beg for anything in the city of Chicago. I could often say, how dare the mayor lie to me? I sat down with her most likely before anyone sat down with her to try to build some type of transparency. Because what I'm wondering and trying to still wonder is how in the world can Chicago police tortures be so widely known now today, but judges often still reject men relief inside of our court systems. We have a lot of work to do. And that work to me is going to have to be bridge work. That bridge work meaning that somewhere along the line, media is going to have to trust us and we're going to have to trust media and we're going to have to expose this for what occurred to us. It's a shame that no John Bird story other than when John Burge was found guilty, ever reached the national front. Never. There is not one national documentary that has ever been written or produced that deals with Burge tortures other than what I've seen you produce, John. And that kind of like, it scares me. So yes, we do need a memorial so that these black kids and so that these Latino and Mexican kids and all kids can be able to reflect upon the, the, the fact that John Burge, he created his tortures in the early 70s and he remained there until he was fired roughly around 1993. He never went to jail for tortures, but went to jail for perjury. He never went to jail for doing anything to a kid. Where was the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services in the mix of all of this? When you had a 13-year-old Marcus Wiggins beat half to death and stuck with electrical prunes in his body, the whole system, they failed us. Thank you. Thank you so, so, so much. I, I so appreciate, you know, that you ultimately just named, right? Like, you know, there was a moment in time where there was some acknowledgement, but not really on a large scale about the, the you know, the multiple individuals who have been impacted by this. And like you said, right, the criminalization of people experiencing poverty, right, that's a real thing when looking at where police are, there it is often in um, communities with a lower socioeconomic background. And so, um, you know, often we're so often we're seeing, even within the complaint data, these stories where people are discredited because they were, you know, they were possessing you know, a drug or, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? They are perceived as, you know, having a mental illness, right? And 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 being described as aggressive, um, even though, you know, I mean, regardless, right? That's, you know, that's how we treat human beings. So um, you know, this just brings me to, I, I appreciate that you named Maurice and also just like the reporting, right, around that time. And so, Maurice, you know, your career as a criminal justice reporter has probably landed you in a lot of newsrooms where people were reporting on criminal 
right? But often they were not including the story. So how do you understand journalism's role in creating conditions that fuel mass incarceration and police torture? And what steps can be taken to counteract it? You know, I'm going to take the hair shirt from John for a minute, but I think John's a little too hard on himself, actually. And I want to thank you all for the kind words. Um, I think there's a lot of cultural issues here. Um, I started as a right out of college as a learning to be a reporter in 1972, which really sort of parallels, you know, what we're talking about here. Um, and what they did at City News was you started working the night shift in you worked in police stations. And so to, to do your job, you had to become friends with police officers. And when you saw the veteran police reporters at the, there were four major newspapers in Chicago at that time, they socialized with police officers. So there was a culture in the media, and I believe there was a culture in the police department of looking the other way, um, of saying that a lot of this stuff was just acceptable because it was part of doing the job. I mean, I had sort of my own personal epiphany about this in the mid nineties when I covered the third Rolando Cruz trial and saw that him be acquitted at his third trial where they were trying to send him to the death chamber for the third time and realized that, you know, this was a false confession. It never happened. Um, and what I realized is how over the years it was ingrained in me that if a prosecutor said it, it was probably true. If a police officer said it, it was probably true. And changing that meant sort of flushing out everything that I had learned and start to learn over. And I look back and, and you know, what John did was go after a culture uh, that was not only what was going on in, in the police department, but was going on in the, in the media itself of not being questioning about these things and maybe even seeing it and just looking the other way, not acknowledging it, not asking the right questions. Um, I remember at one point um, going up to uh, the city desk at the Tribune, this is in later years, and saying, I've got a story that we have exclusively that we can have for tomorrow about an exoneration. And an editor looked at me and said, haven't we done that story? Well, yeah, it's a different person. I mean, there's a fatigue that actually comes in, that, that comes into play in the media. And I think that it's uh, really, um, uh, reporters have a lot of responsibility to keep pushing even against this fatigue. You know, you, you say, so now I, I write up um, wrongful conviction stories for the National Registry of Exonerations. Um, it went public in 2012, and as it was mentioned, we're close to 2,700 um, exonerations. And of those, I've probably written about 2,000 of those stories. Um, 
And so every one of those stories is an individual tragedy for a lot of people, not just the defendants, but for the families, for people, it, it just, it ripples. And telling stories is what I think we need to do. And more and more, the more and more that you tell the stories, you start to get a critical mass and somebody has to be first. And John was that person. And, you know, I look back today, we did a series on false and coerced confessions in 2001. So it took us 10 years before the Tribune really caught up and took a deep dive when we looked at 10 years worth of murder cases in Chicago and found almost 250 where police said someone confessed and one of two things happened. They were acquitted or the charges were dismissed. And that meant you have to step back and say, well, so what's the right question here? And the question is, once every two weeks, on average, for a decade, police said someone confessed and yet there was no conviction. And so that either means a guilty person went free or an innocent person was charged. And what's wrong with the system? Um, you know, there are 339 official exonerations in the registry that are false confession cases. 30%, a hundred of those are in Illinois and 86 or 25% of all false confession exonerations are in Chicago. Now, 26 of those, and we have a specific criteria. Um, and so not everyone gets in. Um, 26 of those are birds related. Does that mean that the other 60 false confessions in Cook County are independent? I don't think so. I think it's this culture that 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 is just the worst end of the spectrum. Okay, the torture. That's the worst end of the spectrum. That this goes there's an arc of police work that is considered good police work to solve a case by a confession. Um I could go on. I, 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 you know, Peter Newfeld said it as good as, as, as well as anyone when he said, Chicago is to false confessions what Cooperstown is to baseball. It is the Hall of Fame. Um, and, you know, watching the Jackie Wilson trial earlier, you know, you just see how this is the legacy goes on. And, People have to tell these stories, and it is a it is a challenge in a time of diminishing resources in the media, diminishing attention span. Um, and I, uh, you know, I think Mark said it. You just have to keep pushing. You have to keep pushing, and you have to keep telling your stories. Um, I mean, if there's one thing I learned is you write one wrongful conviction story, and the next day your mailbox is full. And it's not because it's people that are disillusioned. It's because it's full of people telling the truth. Um, and there's just not enough of us to go around. You just hope that, you know, you can get people convinced to devote some resources to it because there is, a, you know, you look around the newsroom in 1972 and 1980, and did you see people of color? No. You just didn't. And I think that, you know, that's 
when you talk about a culture, um, you're talking about a culture of, it, it was rare to cover issues like poverty, wrongful convictions, corruption in police. It just was rare. You know, for years, and if a police officer was charged, it was because the feds did it, not because the state's attorney's office did it. Um, so, you know, I do. I just think that people have to be encouraged, and by that I mean media people have to be encouraged to to listen to stories that there are stories that there are still stories that and that these stories have meaning and and should be told. Thank you so, so, so much, Maurice. And I, I really appreciate that you named, you know, part of the job, right? You were like, this is a thing that is a part of the job, you know, acknowledging that, you know, this is a common practice, the practice of harming people, you know, with the goals of like getting the bad guy or um, doing their job, right? It's, there is like violence interwoven into every, every part of it. And so I thank you so much for sharing with us as well. Um, I know you all are really excited for this question and answering portion, but I have one more person who I'm going to ask the question of. And, you know, um, obviously, Joey Mogul could speak to the past and the present. Um, but today I'm going to bring it in and, and, and think really about the future. You know, Joey, it's really been an honor to walk, watch you work within so many spaces because you've been able to share insight about legal institutions, you understand operating within city government, and then also within organizing spaces. And so I'm curious, you know, moving forward, how do we hold the inside strategy accountable and propel it? And then what should journalists and media makers be working on today? I know it's a big question. I know you're gonna have so much to say, um, but, the floor is yours, Joey. Oh, thank you. Um, it's such an honor to be here. Um, and I appreciate hearing from everyone and learning their insights. But I also want to give a particular shout out to Greg and to Mark. Um, because I'm, you know, obviously, you know, you you all have been through so much, um, both your torture, your incarcerations, the decades of disbelief. And it, it's obviously still very painful for you, but you nonetheless are just selfless in your perseverance and resilience and sharing your truths and trying to fight for others. And that is just a beautiful quality of both of you that is heartwarming and inspiring and it's very moving. And I appreciate all that you do. Um, you know, how do we hold the inside accountable? I think, um, you know, I'm someone who believes that um, we hold the, the power of collective action, and it's essentially the power of the people is the way that we're going to get the most profound change. And I think if you look at the Burge torture cases, what we can see the through line is, is that the insiders, whether it be the judges, the prosecutors, the city officials, never wanted to take responsibility for these racist acts of torture, did not want to stop them, did not want to investigate them, did not want to hold people accountable, and instead did everything in their power to cover it up. And fortunately, it was through the journalism of John and Maurice and others that helped bring the truth to light. 
I think it was through the litigation that helped uncover and document this pattern and practice of torture. And it was also the, the perseverance and resilience of the torture survivors who, despite being denied, disbelieved, and shut down time and time again, continued to fight to tell their truths and their stories. And it was that, that, inf that collective information, that collective storytelling was then used by the people, right? To get Burge fired from the Chicago Police Department. It took a movement to take that, to make it happen. Um, Maurice, you and Ken Armstrong and Steve Mills did this amazing peer set of, of articles around the death penalty. It led to reforms by the courts, but really nothing changed. It wasn't for a clemency campaign that then led to the clearing out of Illinois' death row. That was again, a people-centered movement. That was an organizing strategy that led to not only the commutation of people's death penalty, death penalty sentences, but then to the abolition of the death penalty in Illinois. I think Burge wouldn't have been prosecuted if it wasn't for boots on the ground. And then finally, there is just no way we would be here today as a group amongst the Chicago Torture Justice Center and the Chicago Torture Justice Memorials if we did not get reparations legislation passed. And I guess I wanted to say to the media people who are following this today, people often remark that this is a legal settlement. It's not a legal settlement, people. This was an organizing campaign that then got and convinced and, and moved and, and pushed our mayor, Emanuel, and our, our legislators and the city council to pass this reparations legislation. There was no way to litigate to success. So where are we going from here? Well, we're back again in seeing that we need, and I think the reality is, if we look in this moment right now, we see that the organizing that's going on and the popular education around racist police, racist police violence is far ahead of the inside game. It's far ahead of the courts. It's far ahead of our politicians. It's far ahead of COPA or any police accountability organization. I mean, you know, regardless of whether it's legal for a police officer to shoot someone with a gun or not, we are seeing people turn out in the streets saying, not in our city, not on our watch, and this is unacceptable. And so I will say this for the future. I think the organizers and the movement and the popular understanding that we have right now is far ahead of where the, the institutions and the inside game is. And we need to keep pushing it forward. I guess I wanna say finally, you know, we're in this historic time and we're in this historic conversation here at the Chicago Torture Justice Center that provides healing services and community services that's unprecedented in the nation. We need to support this institution, okay? We also though need to create and, and, and solidify the dominant narrative around the Burge torture cases, right? Um, John, you wrote in your piece, in your blog about the Burge torture, about Burge's prosecution back in 2010, that most of the jurors who were being questioned about whether they could sit for the jury they, most of them came forward and said they knew nothing about the Burge torture cases, even though it was reported in the mainstream media. And, you know, it, it, was, it was a dominant story in the mainstream media prior to Burge's trial in 2010, but people still did not know it. And so I think there's an importance to media, but I think, and we, we need journalists like you to keep covering this, but we need to create our own markers where we can enshrine this dominant narrative. 
And that is where the Burge Torture Justice Memorial needs to be created. We need a commitment from Mayor Lightfoot, who has not given it to us today, that we are gonna build this memorial, fulfilling the reparations legislation. So we can inscribe this racist history into the landscape of Chicago. And we can also document the perseverance and resilience of Greg and Mark and all the torture survivors and their family members. And we can document and memorialize the four decade long struggle for justice in these cases so that we can learn from this and it can propel us to fight on for even more justice and more liberation. Thank you so much uh, for, for that, Joey. I, I think that's right on point. Of There is this relationship between those experiencing the harm, those naming the harm, and those that are fighting to do something about it. And we hope that we can exist in the same room as we've been able to do in this conversation. Uh, but it's important, particularly for those who are privileged to not uh, be directly impacted by, by this violence, to step up and do our part. Um, and so this whole month, is a part is a call in or an opportunity uh, to step in and do your part. So there'll be many more events. That I just want to name uh, before we shout out the folks on the Facebook Live and shut that down and and, and close up in our Zoom here. Uh, but before folks go, I just want to one remind you again to please please go to ChicagoTortureJustice.org where you can donate to both the center and the memorial. Um, and there will be a month worth of events that are going to follow this. So there's going to be a press conference tomorrow morning that we want all of our community uh, to look up from. Uh, we got Mothers of the Movement, an event with different mothers that have organized with a panel uh, that is going to be moderated by Mark Clemens. Uh, we also have a maker sessions later this week. Uh, there's going to be a tattoo artist fundraiser, a politicized healing session, uh, as well as some West African drumming and body movement. As, and then also, I'm very excited, we're going to have a performance uh, by Avery R. Young. So please, please, please stay connected to Chicago Torture Justice Projects through this month. Please support everything you hear. Um, and I want to take a few questions from the audience uh, from the Facebook Live before folks hop out of here. I just want to make sure we got those plugs in. Um, and it looks like one of the ones that's coming up that's really important that, uh, Maurice, I heard you start to speak towards. So if, if other folks have something they want to add, the question is, uh, Burge was not an anomaly, I believe. And for this person to ask this question, it's not just your belief. You got, you got some people that will stand with you on that claim. Um, and so how or in what ways is anyone looking at what's going on now? Um, so, you know, I know that I, I think we can talk, uh, Joey, you have something to, to pop in on that first. And then if anybody else wants to popcorn on that answer of, uh, we know that the police are still violent and torturous. How, how are we looking at this in our current uh, uh, time? Well, I just want to quickly say, you know, we still have, um, at least 13 Burge torture survivors who are still behind bars fighting to have their claims of torture heard. And this does not account for all the other police torture survivors who were not tortured under Burge's regime that are still fighting. Um, Burge had a lot of henchmen. Many of them were never disciplined. Um, they were allowed to retire from the force. And we, we're seeing that the courts are not granting those people, particularly individuals who were tortured at area three or area one, any relief. And we need to recognize that you know, people were trained and they were um, basically encouraged to engage in acts of torture. I think you know, I, I can go on and I think we're seeing again, just 
the continuing racist state violence, whether there's police killings with shootings, tasering, um, sexual assault and misconduct that is going unabated, undeterred, that we need to think about it. And I think that's why we're seeing the rise of the defund CPD campaign, which is, I think, timely and right on. But I also just want to say that I think we need to have a larger conversation about the way police interrogations work. And I think there's a lot of work that's being done that recognizes that the tactics used by police officers, particularly the Reed method of interrogation, absolutely coerces people without using physical abuse, but using mental tactics and psychological coercion to extract people's confessions. And um, I think that I think I'm really hoping that we see a lot more media and a lot more journalists start to uncover some of those tactics as well. If I can just add, I think people, one of the things I learned is that I, I needed help from people in the defense community to point me in the right direction or to provide me with information that I could use to, to write a, to, to underpin a story. And it took time to develop trust. I remember having a conversation with uh, Karen Daniel, who I miss dearly. Um, And Steve and I were going to talk about a work on a case um, that she and uh, 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 Jeff Erdangan were involved in. And she was reluctant to let me look at the police reports and the documents in the case. She said, what if you find out something, if you come to conclude that my client is guilty. And I said, I move on to the next case. I do not want to write a story that says so-and-so is still guilty. That's not my job. My job is to look for cases that I can show is a wrongful conviction. And ultimately, we wrote that story um, uh, about that case. But it, it, it involves people in the defense community finding reporters that they can build a system of trust that that they can provide information to them and point them in the right direction and that they won't be um, violated them. So that trust won't be violated. Um, just quickly, Trina. So I think journalists, since your retirement, since Steve's absence, it's watered down and it's like, taking steps back and it's now you have to convince particular uh, journalists that even what Burge did was was wrong or that did he do it? And, you know, I have a problem with media putting in alleged Burge torture survivor. You know, if the city of Chicago gave you one roach free of charge, guess what? They gave you that roach to try to hope that you would go and sit back due to the fact that they already know that the claims that you're making has forms of, they're credible. We are, it's like mothers. You know, we, we, we're dealing with a hurting generation and it's, a shame that human beings could stoop to this level and they used young kids' disabilities, older people disabilities, and they used this stuff 
against us. You know, man, I've played a role in at least 312 people being released. People don't understand how that makes me feel. It makes me feel old. It makes me feel just like I never had a youth. And every day I try to find out if I could ever have a youth. Police tortures, it messed my life up. And in messing my life up, I just wonder about all of those other brothers and sisters and mothers how much they're suffering. So I'll just end it, but media definitely have to get on board. We need a memorial center. I was just, thank you so much, Mark. I was just gonna really quick add that at the end, so I'm the director of data at the Invisible Institute. At the Invisible Institute, we have like um, these complaints filed against police going all the way back to honestly 1974, but on our website, we have 1988 to 2018. I just want to name that like many of the stories that live within complaint data, you know, are from people who are who are survivors of police violence. And um, a lot of times people just um, automatically refute, refute the credibility of the hundreds of thousands of people who have come forward for, you know, decades now, since at least, you know, I mean, we know OPS began in 1974 and then to 2007 and then IPRA from 2007 to 2017. And now we have COPA. Um, and so, you know, there, you know, this thing that you're naming, right, you know, this acknowledgement as like, oh, this thing happened and we're going to give y'all a little something, but y'all could keep it. It's like, no, there is a whole thing happening and it is all the way in the prisons and all the way to the daily mundane interactions that police have with community members on a regular basis. Um, thank you. I, I want to um, just just add in, in one piece uh, of framing, but also uh, bring in some of the affirmations uh, that have come in from the Facebook specifically. Um, so Mark and Greg, uh, just so many folks um, appreciating you, naming your your brilliance and the gifts that you've offered. Um, uh, one person said that they've began, you know, doing work around exonerations and false confessions from some of this story. So just to let you know uh, that there are so many people uh, who are listening and who hear you and, and are grateful. Um, and so to that question of, you know, moving this a little bit more of a contemporary understanding. And I want to uh, merge that with another question that we got about the survivors dealing with the notion of disbelief and how can we create other storytelling containers beyond relying on institutional media and journalism, especially with the divestment in, in mainstream media and, and where it has gone in our neoliberal world. Um, I want to be that guy that that goes back to, to my experience in 2016 with the occupation we did called Freedom Square uh, across from Holman Square. Uh, and that, again, was a, a chosen site for direct action because of some journalism that was exposing many documented cases of, of, of torture and, and illegal uh, communicado detention and false confession coming out of that space. Um, and what happened was we then showed up and so many people that did not even know why we were there 
were able to come and share their story. Uh, and that was as of 2016. And people said uh, that that had been happening to them within that last year. Um, and so from that experience of then showing up and then doing the work, so many more people have heard about that dynamic or story. Um, even while we were there, uh, police officers tried to take a young boy that was engaging with our encampment into an abandoned movie theater. Um, and if it wasn't for community engagement, um, you know, we don't know what would have happened in that space. Um, I, I go to an, another example of how showing up uh, brings out so many of these stories. I, I honored Dorothy Holmes in as many spaces as I can, the mother of, of Ronald Ronnie Man Johnson. Um, just this past year, as we were uh, honoring his life again in, in the park where he was killed by Detective George Hernandez, um, a man who was living in the elder facility across the street just pulled up and, and said, what are y'all doing here? And said, my son was killed by the police. Um, and so to that question of how do we continue to tell the story without only relying on major outlets, particularly with the technology advantages that we have now, it is show up and name that you are standing up for justice and against injustice. And you will be surprised how many folks who have been disbelieved or been silenced or who've held trauma in uh, will be present and will share their information. And then it's our responsibility uh, to continue to bear witness. I know we're running a little bit uh, on time, uh, so I want to, if, if in the chat, if anybody can can give me a heads up, but I just got uh, one really deep question uh, that, that I want to bring to the space if folks are present. I think it's, it's relative uh, to something Maurice named, but I think John can maybe uh, talk about this too. Um, so I, I'll put myself in this. I, I identify as an abolitionist, and I believe that this institution being torturous is not an anomaly, uh, but actually very much in align with all of its historical roots and the role that it has played in, in history, particularly relative to Black Americans. And so within that, um, within the abolitionist uh, thinking, there has been a complication of this divide between innocence and guilty um, and understanding if all police is torturous, then we need to be responding to all human rights violations. So the question was, why not also pursue stories of guilty people who were tortured, even if they're guilty, aren't those abuses and violations and constitutional rights still wrong? Um, and if we only pursue stories about innocent people, are we excusing the treatment that those who are deemed guilty by the state uh, experience, even though we still know it to be wrong? So that's a challenging question. And I think we'll probably close our Facebook after that um, and, and say our thank yous. But if y'all have any thoughts to challenging some of the, the relationships between guilt and innocence relative to, to state violence. I, I, I'll offer one thought, and that is that um, it's just as bad to torture, you know, I believe that to torture the guilty as it is the innocent. But in the, in the court of public opinion, Okay, which is when you're writing, it's tough to build a case on the backs of guilty people. Uh, and I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying when when we uh, one of the things that we did at the Tribune was try to let data drive the story. So you're going to look at all murder cases in a 10 year period. We're going to look at all death row cases. We're going to look at, you know, all and the faces that you want to get to hopefully make the difference are people that are wrongly convicted. But you cannot forget the people who are guilty because these are, you're exactly right. This is, these are violations. They, these are, uh, you know, this is, and, and they should be entitled to, you know, the same fair treatment as anybody else. I'm not 
trying to justify emphasizing the innocent. I'm saying that, you know, one of the things I also learned is I all, I thought for a while that, you know, the pocketbook effect might influence policy, you know, people's thinking, but it really doesn't. It, e- even in a city that's self-insured, you know, it just rolls off taxpayers' backs, the millions they, or, you know, they settle the Ford Heights 4 case for $40 million, you know, whatever that was. Um, so it's kind of like, what do you what do you find to get some traction with people? Um, and I think it's a problem um, because people tend to think that guilty people deserve it. And that's just ugly. Thank you, Joey. I, I saw you say something in the chat. Uh, I'll just throw it to you right quick. And then I, I saw John coming off, but I feel like that's important to name. I mean, I just want to say, like, there are birds torture survivors who remain convicted of their crimes and, and may have committed the crimes, but we fought for all of them. Um, and we got reparations for people who were both guilty and innocent. So I, I do hear what you're saying, Maurice. It's very hard. But I also think the moment we're in is saying we need to look past um, this, you know, crimes that people commit and recognize everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and humanity, and they're entitled to, you know, redress for the, the violations they incur. But, you know, I also know, John, you covered many people who were not innocent, right? Well, Andrew Wilson wasn't innocent. He did shoot those two cops, and he was the basis of House of Screams. Um, and perhaps that's why it was so hard to sell it to the public. Um, you know, I think Maury is right. Uh, in, there's a lot of people who just don't care um, what happens to people whom they perceive to be guilty, and they perceive a lot of people to be guilty who aren't. But that doesn't mean that the guilty aren't um, deserving of the same human rights as everybody else. I just also want to say, like, we have a very narrow definition of crime and of who constitutes a victim and who constitutes a perpetrator. And I think, you know, we get lost in it in these cases and we let the criminal legal system define this for us. But again, I feel like the public and the the movement is way ahead of us right now and or way ahead of what and not allowing the legal system to define who's innocent, who's guilty, who's a perpetrator, who's a criminal. Um, And, I, you know, I mean, there are a lot of corporate crimes out here. There are a lot of environmental crimes out here that cause a lot of damage. And we're, you know, we're not we're not holding them accountable. Um, But, you know, I I guess I just want to throw out there that, you know, not everyone is, you know, a lot, a lot, we all commit bad acts. We all commit, we all do harm to others. We should not be defined by the worst acts that we commit. And again, we are all entitled to humanity and dignity. And, you know, journalism, catch up with us. (laughs) Mark, did you have a final word? Yes. Um, A little bit of homework I forgot. I just want to, I want to thank all of the mothers, all of the attorneys, all of the journalists, uh, and just send condolences to Brother Brian Nelson, who lost his life uh, fighting for individuals inside of the prison system. I agree with both sides. It's a very difficult task when you're dealing with innocence or guilt. 
but I believe that once a person's human rights has been violated, I think that uh, that should supersede in that particular uh, arena. You know, if I had a dollar for everyone who, once I was freed and I somewhat felt red flag me that they were guilty, then I would be super rich. The bottom line of it is, is this. I think that what John Burge did, it's, it affects us each and every day. It has to be some way to bring some type of historical uh, attention to the community as to what John Burge did. And some of the brothers, not mentioning any of them, it totally messes me up to see how the system was allowed to mess them up behind prison walls. And with them now being out and now having a better sense of this society, I just shake my head because they don't have much of an opportunity. And that is one thing that I think that we need to focus upon. And it's called some type of angle dealing with state reparations because they have caused harm in ways that is unimaginable. And especially through Tom Dart when he was a state representative and he came out with all of these so-called reforms uh, shortly before Egger had lost office. Right now, our prisons are nothing but, as John said, the House of Screams. They are the House of Screams behind IDOC. But love you all. Thank you for that, Mark. And as we heard in this conversation today, we have to remember that John Burge is a name and a figurehead that does represent an extreme of a spectrum, uh, but is not an isolated incident or figure. And that this practice of torture and destruction of life and community extended beyond one person, one commander, and one police station. Uh, it, is, it has continued for lifetimes and the healing is gonna take generations. So reparation means to repair and the state has a responsibility, but they are not equipped to make it right what has been wronged. And so that's where we come in and we love you. And this act and this work of healing and bearing witness is primarily an act of love. I really wanna take the time to thank you, Mark and Gregory uh, for all the work that you do with CTJC and beyond, uh, but for really you know, bringing your experience to this space again and continuing to, to live through your pain uh, for the healing and the justice of so many more. Uh, John Conroy and Maurice Posley, we thank you so much uh, for your multiple, multiple years of work and continuing to stay connected to this effort and to, to our community. Joey, we appreciate you uh, for fighting and for showing up. Thank you so much for your work and your knowledge. And Miss Trina Reynolds-Tyler, uh, so, so grateful for you and the Invisible Institute and all the work that you do. And it really meant a lot to have you and your voice uh, and y'all's team be connected uh, to this event here. So go to the Invisible Institute's website and you can see the Chicago Torture or Archive to learn more 
uh, about this history. Please, again, I remind you, uh, go visit chicagotorturejustice.org where you can donate to both the center and the memorial. Uh, but we have to be determined and dedicated because we have so much work to do. 